This episode is sponsored by ContentFind, a premium video editing and content repurposing service for busy content creators, influencers, brands, podcasters, YouTubers, and marketers. ContentFi provides unlimited end-to-end editing and repurposing services to help you get your video and audio content edited and repurposed quickly, easily, and reliably. Join other busy content creators, founders, brands, and marketers who now spend even more time creating while they take care of the rest. You no longer need to worry about spending hours editing anymore. Just create content, build your audience, and grow your business. If you're a content creator looking to save time and money, or looking to outsource your content marketing team, get your first free video edited now at contentfi.co. If you'd like to sponsor the SaaS District podcast, or recommend any guests that you think would be valuable to be on the show, visit horizoncapital.com slash SaaS dash podcast today. Thanks again, folks. Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how GreenPal is hitting 100% year-over-year growth, is at over $5 million in ARR, they have, and with no outside capital and without a background in tech. Today, we have our guest, Brian Clayton, joining us. Brian is the co-founder and CEO of GreenPal, a web and mobile app that instantly connects homeowners with home service professionals. Brian's experience between his multiple exits and past ventures include being the founder of Peachtree, one of the largest landscaping companies in Tennessee, growing it to over $10 million in annual revenue before selling it in 2013. GreenPal has, is currently crushing it at over $5 million ARR, over 200,000 clients, and hitting 100% year-over-year growth for the last eight years. So welcome, Brian. Super excited to have you on the SaaS District show today. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. <laughs> awesome. So for those who don't know you, you have an interesting background. You know, you worked in, you don't have a, a tech background. You were in the blue collar space, but then you've had a couple of exits as well. Um, can you share a little bit of details about your background, past ventures, and also about your exit uh, with Peachtree as well? Yeah, I was drug kicking and screaming into entrepreneurship <laughs> by my father on a hot summer day. He came into my room, interrupted me playing Nintendo. He said, get off your butt. You've got a job to do. You're going to go mow the neighbor's grass. Made me go cut the neighbor's lawn. And uh, oh, after I got done mowing it, I got, I got paid 20 bucks and I was just hooked on owning my own business ever since. I stuck with that little lawn mowing business that summer and passed. I remember the first thing I did, I went to my computer and made up some flyers. And by the end of that summer, I had like 15 grass cutting customers in the neighborhood and so I just stuck with that business all through high school, all through college. And uh, when I graduated college, I had to make a decision. Was I going to stick with this lawn mowing business uh, or go into the job market? And I decided, hey, I don't really want to be a grass cutting guy my entire life, but let's just see where this goes and made a little business plan. And over a 15 year period of time, I built that into one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee where I live. I got it over $10 million a year in revenue, over 150 employees. And uh, actually that company was acquired by in one of the largest acquisitions in that industry industry for about a decade. And so building that business, just me and a push mower to me and like 80 trucks going out every day and hundreds of employees, I, I kind of learned the hard way how to, how to build a business like that. And uh, when I sold that, I just retired. I, I stopped working. I got, and I took some time off and I got bored and I decided, okay, it's time to do the next thing. Biz- business is just part of what brings me joy, brings me purpose. And that's when I recruited two co-founders and started working on GreenPal. 
Super cool. And uh, when you were in, how old were you again when you first started that first? I company? was like 16, 15, 16, 16 years old. And, okay. uh, and so I, and, and luckily, you know, if my dad hadn't done that for me, there's no telling how different my life would have turned out. Interesting. It's, a, it's awesome to have that somebody who pushes you into that direction. Yeah. Um, when you were out, when you went back home, you started printing those flyers and then you went out and started getting more customers. Was that just you yourself or did you, did you realize like, oh, I need to bring somebody on? Did you have another co-founder? Or did yeah, you just so so b- back in those days, it was just me, a push mower, and just just a chip on my shoulder. Basically, I, I I wanted to make a lot of money, and I saw that I could work as hard as I wanted to work, and I could make as much as I wanted to make. And that's something that just kind of stuck with me building that first company, uh, especially in the early years. I was I was making a good living just mowing grass, and as time went on, you know, I hired my first helper, second helper, third helper, and then I I got another crew going, and then slowly figured out how to build a little sales engine, and figured out how to really kick my competitors' butts and do better service. At a better price than they were, and over time, just really built that into a, a good, healthy business that was a uh, that was acquirable. Super, super cool. Yeah, I mean, people always think. I mean, even today, right? You can do similar things, and I think it's just the patience, the persistence. I mean, the the, the fact that you kept pushing at it as such a simple business model. I mean, I have a friend who who has a, a commercial cleaning business today. I mean, he started the same kind of way you did. Now he's got you know a huge team. He's doing seven figures in revenue, but. I don't think you did anything special, right? It was just a, you know, you started with the one one customer with a, with a couple of cleaning equipment and then he just compounded, see where it took him and then eventually, you know, ended up doing something really well if you if he stuck to it long enough, right? Yeah, I think there's like correlation between the, the least sexy your business, the better your odds of success. And so for <laughs> me, you know, like the lawn mowing business is, is not one of the most sexiest businesses you can be in. But for me, it was one that was straightforward that I understood and I worked really hard on, got lucky and had a lot of good people working on it with me. And mm. it was just one that kind of was like my vehicle to make something of myself. And uh, that's one of the beautiful things about the, the, the service industry is that anybody can really get into it and kind of cut their teeth on entrepreneurship and kind of learn from scratch how to start a business and not have to take on any outside capital, any debt. You can kind of ease your way into it. And then for me, like over a 20-year period of time, that first business is what set me up to build my second business. And, you know, now GreenPow has been at this eight years. It's like the Uber for lawn mowing. I, you know, recruited mm-hmm. two co-founders, started working on this thing. And uh, it was slow going in the first year. But I, I knew that that it was really a kind of a repeat of building that first business all over again. I just knew that it took is going, t- going to take time, that mm-hmm. we just needed to keep working on it. And, and if we can continue to grow, that we could have something big one day. And been at this eight years. And, you know, we ended our first year with, with 23 customers, half of them were my friends and family. Mm-hmm. And now we have over, you know, several hundred thousand people using it. So it's, it's, it's been a hell of a journey and one that, I, you know, looking back, I'm glad I started uh, because I'm a completely different person today than I was eight years ago when I started this business. Love it. Yeah, I always tell founders, you know, if they're, if they're going to start a business without experience, I think starting in the service space is the best way if you want to transition into tech, especially if you don't have that that background. It gives you a lot of foundation to set you up for, for better once you move into that. Um, how did you discover, I mean, eventually launched GreenPal with your two co-founders. Um, how did you realize there was a clear demand for this service in the market and how did you know it would work? I think a lot of times when you're inventing a new product from scratch. So on the one hand, it's it's very different building a big landscaping company and then inventing a new product that's tech-based. And I didn't really realize how different those things were. You know, like if you're going to be in business, you can, you can execute a kind of a known business plan or you, or you can like, if you're crazy, you can try to invent a new product. For us, we were inventing a new product that did not exist. And so I think when you're doing that, it can help to be solving your own problem. If you really 
understand the problem. You've lived it. You've walked in the customer's shoes or you've been in the industry. And, and I think if you really inherently like in innately understand the dynamics of that. That can be very helpful if you're inventing a product to help make all that easier. Certainly was the case for me. I had spent 15 years in this industry and I saw on a daily basis just how difficult it was for homeowners to get hooked up with the best little lawn mowing service in their in their neighborhood. As my business grew, you know, we no longer did the residential stuff. We no longer did the the $35 lawn mowings. We, we, we were doing office parks, apartments, airports, uh, restaurants, banks, things like that. But we would still get like, hundred phone calls a day, people in Nashville, Tennessee saying, Hey, will you come cut my grass? And you know, sorry, we don't, we don't really do that anymore. Uh, because we had a visible brand in our little marketplace, but we kept a list of name and numbers, uh, names and numbers by the phone. And we would refer out people just, just to be helpful. Sure. And so I saw that and I, and I, and I, and when I sold that business, I, you know, I, I knew that that was a problem. And then I saw what Uber and Airbnb and Lyft were doing for these real world, uh, transactions. And I thought, okay, an app needs to exist to, to make this whole thing run smoother, to make it run easier. And uh, luckily, I knew the problem. I knew it was a good, I knew the product needed to exist to solve the problem. But luckily, I was naive about how difficult it was going to be to, to, mm-hmm. to build that product. And not necessarily even like the techno- technology piece of it, because I had none, but also the dynamics of building a marketplace that connects buyers and sellers. I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, recruited two co-founders and we just went to work. We just went to work on, on getting a, a version out and, and building the first beta of, of the thing and is trying to beg people to use it and learn from those people and then, and then, and then re- rebuild like the app over and over and over again based off the feedback we were getting. So that ignorance was actually a blessing in disguise for you and, and you actually pushed through a few, a few looking back now, right? Yeah, yeah. Luckily, mm-hmm. like if I had known how, how just ridiculously insanely difficult it was going to be, I wouldn't have done it. I, I just yeah. would have just, I, I, you know, I was, I was retired. I didn't really have to work. And, and, uh, the only thing that got me back in the game was it's like, okay, I, I'm missing that purpose in my life. I'm missing that thing that's driving me forward. And, and for me, business is that thing that, that, that lends me that purpose. Yeah, it's pretty common among entrepreneurs, right? Once they have that exit or, you know, they have a lot of money in their account, um, they think, yeah, I'm just going to go to a beach and lie down for, for the rest of my life. But yeah, give it even like three months, four months, you're like, no, I, I'm, I'm getting crazy here. I don't want, I don't want to see a pina colada for, for another couple of years, right? Three months, three hours. Three hours? It's like, I mean, <laughs> it's like, I mean, as it, as it turns out, yeah. sitting on a beach is kind of boring. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it's cool for an hour, maybe yeah. two, but yeah. after about three hours, I'm like, all right. You know, I mean, the, the biggest problem I have ran into today is the bar ran out of my favorite type of tequila. <laughs> uh, you know, there's got to be more to the life than this. And so that's what got me back in the game. Nice, nice love. And so you guys didn't raise any outside capital, completely bootstrapped. Is that because of the capital you had from that previous exit? Or, you know, was it just a low kind of uh, cost up front that you, you think that, uh, like, how much would you say you invested up front? Yeah, great question. So, um, while it was tempting to take the proceeds from my first company and plow them into the second company, I didn't want to ever pick up a weed eater ever again in my life. And so I was like, oh, there's, no matter what, I'm not going backwards. Like I've, I've, I've been there, done that. I've, I've cut grass 14 hours a day, uh, seven days a week before in my life. And I never want to go back to that. And so for me, I took all the proceeds from that first business and, and locked it down. I, I invested in real estate and a lot of things that were, that were illiquid. So I didn't have a bunch of money to, to, to plow into the second business. So we, my two co-founders and I pulled together like $150,000 and we invested that in building the first version. 
which as it turns out, we had to totally scrap because it was a total piece of crap. And we had to like, that was a total waste, but we at least got enough feedback from users to understand what we really needed to build. And then we just went to work on building that. And we had to kind of learn how to build software as we were building that second version. So that was like a three-year period of time of of launching the beta, scrapping it, and then learning how to build code code and build software and, and building the second version. And uh, and so we, we bootstrapped the business for a couple of reasons. One, I, I took a very sustainable, pragmatic approach to building my first business. My first business was completely debt-free. And that was one of the only reasons why I was able to get that business sold. And so kind of an early mentor of mine was Dave Ramsey. I listened to him every day on, on the radio while I was mowing yards. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that, that, that he espouses doesn't really apply to people who have great ambitions of building businesses. But a lot of it is is pragmatic. And so just taking that like slow and low sustainable approach of no debt. And then, and then I kind of just like bundled investors with that. I knew I didn't want to be beholden to external stakeholders. I knew I didn't want a bunch of people meddling with what we were doing. And so that just never really appealed to me. And I, I kind of always knew that like revenue was going to be the best form of financing. If we can make some damn money yeah. And 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 put that money to work and make more money, rinse and repeat. If we could just do that for long enough, we'll have something. And while the first few years were really, really tough, that was the approach we took. And and luckily here we are today, you know, we've got a clean cap table. We own the one hundred percent of the business. We, you know, we're telling investors no every every week. Um, and we have a profitable business. And if had we had gone the route of the traditional tech startup, which is okay, raise a C in the series A, B, C, you know, we would own single digits of the business and we would have to like pursue a $300 million exit just to even like get whole. And uh, that's not where we find ourselves. So we're, we're, we're in good shape. Luckily, we took the hard path. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And, and do you have an exit plan with this one? Did you have one from the beginning or what's your, what's your thoughts now with this? For, for us, we, we're kind of mission driven. We want mm. green power. We have a chip on our shoulder. We want green power to be like in the lexicon of the English language in the same way mm. that like Uber or Airbnb is like, you're going to Uber to the airport. Okay. You're, hey, dude, your grass is four feet tall. Why don't you just jump on green power? Get somebody to do it. We, we want to see this brand, uh, uh, rise to that to that level and so until we've done that we're not done and and the good thing is we're profitable you know we're, we're able to pay ourselves uh, a healthy salary and and so and then everything else we reinvest back into the business and seeing it grow is, is a lot of fun and so we're not on any kind of like definitive exit plan or anything like that we never really have been we just always knew we wanted to build a, a healthy profitable business that was growing fast nice and you guys are all over the u.s right now are you in a couple of cities or is there any international expansion plans we started in Nashville, Tennessee. We spent four years just in Nashville, believe it or not. And that was wow. so humbling. Just like, you know, because you got to think I had a business that was doing like 100, 150 people going out every day, mowing yards everywhere. And, and, and you know, we were doing thousands of, of properties every day. And then I, I started all over and then I'm begging people to use this thing for $27 to get their grass cut. And like our goal was if we can just get a hundred people to use it in one week. And that took three years. Wow. <laughs> and so, and so, so the lesson there is like when you're starting one of these marketplaces, like focus, just focus on one geo, focus on one use case on, on one kind of customer set and to see if you can get that overlap of supply and demand and, and to kind of spark that, that uh, critical mass. And 
And so it took us three or four years just in Nashville. Then we slowly launched our second market in Tampa, Florida, and our third market in Atlanta. Now here we are eight years later. We're in every major city in the United States because we kind of have it figured out. But it took us a while to, to, to learn how to, how to roll it out city by city. That's, that's amazing. So let's talk about some of the challenges about marketplaces. You, you mentioned quite a few. You know, starting service delivery process always involves human interaction still, right? You're building this at scale, at least in, the, in your home care kind of services, you can call it. Um, you know, so digitalized service and then human behavior is, is obviously unpredictable. Um, I don't know, you know, two sets of service maybe can't be identical and there are details and results. What's kind of your process for maintaining, you know, quality assurance among all your services and everything that's delivered. Whereas when you had your original company, you know, you, you were managing the team, you were on top of everybody. How do you manage it now? Yeah, these are all great questions. And I think um, there's like a graveyard of Uber for X startups, you know, yeah. Uber for home cleaning, Uber for laundry service, Uber for park your car, Uber for uh, massages. And like, you know, probably a half a trillion dollars of, of venture capital crashed into the ground. Maybe not that much, but several billion. And so, and so, uh, the problem that a lot of these marketplaces uh, in the early days, in like 13, 14, 15, in, in, for like Uber for services, they, they, uh, the common problem they made was that they, they treated their service providers as fungible commodities. They looked at what Uber did and, and said, okay, yeah, that'll work for home cleaning. Well, it actually won't because, you know, while you might not care who picks you up and, and takes you to the airport, you do care about who's coming into your home and cleaning your 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 home, Absolutely. and and you yeah. want that to be the same person every week. And so, that was a common mistake that most every one of these Uber for X companies made. And and we kind of we kind of almost made that mistake too. And then we realized, okay, we have to power that relationship between the homeowner and their service provider. And how do we like our you know how do we architect the product to make that smoother and balance the wants and desires on both sides of the transaction? And so that was just something that. Quite frankly, this took trial and error. You 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 tr you try to roll out one one set of features, then it pisses off one side of the transaction, and then you kind of move back to the other side, and it pisses off the other side. What we came to learn is that if service providers don't love it, I mean, if they don't love it, like if they don't want to open it up every day and make money on it, then you don't have a product. Mm. And 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 it, it, you can apply that to dog walking, home cleaning, uh, locksmithing, whatever. You have to start with something that service providers love to use and can make material income on. Because if you don't have that, then then, then homeowners or, or consumers can't hire them off the shelf. And so that's how we started off. And, and it might be my background in the industries. You know, I have the scars on my hands on how difficult it is to make a living in the grass cutting business. It might be that background that influenced that, but that's still how we approach it today. We, we over-optimize and over-serve the vendor side, the, su mm -hmm. the, the supply side, at the expense sometimes of the consumer side. Is the customer always right? No. No, mm -hmm. because their expectation is... Uh, is, is Uber for lawn mowing, quite frankly. And is that like they, they can just push a button every, you know, three or six or eight weeks and somebody will come mow their grass in 15 minutes. That's not the reality of how this business works. It's a route-based business. And so, uh, you know, really kind of figuring that out and building a product that works for both sides of the transaction was something that took us years. And I think that applies to most any multi-sided marketplace, particularly in the, in the services industry. Right. And I think it's why... If you're like a vertically focused uh, app, like on one thing, that's how you can deliver that delightful experience. When you try to go too wide and be the Uber for home painters and, and the Uber for for, for plumbers, mm -hmm. I think it breaks down and, and you really can't de deliver that reliable experience. 
Make, makes sense. So what would you say is the biggest challenge? So you guys really focus on the the, the, the quality of the service unless like when you're trying to balance the two, especially when you go in a new city, um, where are you focusing first? Are you trying to get users to sign up and start, you know, logging up? Or are you trying to get all those, uh, you know, service providers uh, signed up first? Yeah. So like I mentioned, if you don't have happy service providers, you don't have a product. But, mm. but the harder side of the equation to solve is the demand side. Usually mm. in any multi-sided market, the, the person putting their credit card down is the harder one to get. And so for us, we're, we're demand constrained uh, in every city because it, we can get as many quality service providers as we want. We have a strong value proposition for them where we really, uh, the bottleneck is getting the word out to consumers. And, and you know, we do that through Facebook, SEO, uh, word of mouth, referral programs, but like we could handle 5x more. And so that's constantly what we're focusing on as the platform is how do we how do we connect the platform's value to more homeowners? How do we get this into the hands of more homeowners? Because we can always get more service providers. And uh, that's that's always been the challenge and the bottleneck. Now, now the, the thing is, is you got to make sure those service providers are good. And in, in the early days, we did that through hand-to-hand combat, you know, through personal interviews. I, I personally like knew the first 500 service providers that use the the platform. I, I spoke with them. I, as a matter of fact, like in the early days, our product was so crappy, like we didn't really have a product for them. And so it was kind of like I had to speak with them on an ongoing basis to kind of kind of like uh, grease the wheels, so to speak. In fact, I offered free coaching and mentoring for like the first hundred service providers as a way to like get that honey and glue. And uh, and so. That worked for a while, but then, but then as we continued to grow and like we were doing like a thousand transactions a week, that started to break down. We had to really look at like, okay, what what are what are some of the signals and data that our platform generates that we can use to to sideline the 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 unreliable uh, lawn care services and promote the good ones? Mm. And so we measure these 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 folks on a on a number of, of, of dimensions that don't normally exist in the analog world. Like, uh, how often do they get booked a second time? Uh, how often do they show up on the day that they're hired? Um, how often do they cancel? Uh, what does their star rating look like? And then like, then there's like six more things. And so we know through our data, okay, these are the good ones. These are the ones that stink. Let's get them, expel them from the platform or promote the good ones. And so that's kind of over time with, through data and through the, the activity on our platform, we've been able to kind of ensure a better experience for homeowners than they would normally get, you know, trying to call somebody off of Facebook or off of Angie's list. Makes sense. And then I know for somebody looking to start a marketplace, I mean, you know, with Uber and, and uh, you know, the Airbnbs, they obviously take a, a percentage of the transaction. How are you guys monetizing GreenPound? What kind of, you know, margins or fees do you typically, are you charging, I'm guessing, on, on the service side, right? The, the contractors? We take a variable percentage of the transaction depending on the, the contractor and, and, and how much uh, activity they have on the platform. And then we also charge for some premium tools that they can use if they want. Mm. So it's totally free for service providers to use, um, to try and use. But at, at, once they start generating revenue on the platform, there's a transactional fee that, that, that they, they pay. And then also if they want to pay for some premium things that we can, we charge them for that as well. For homeowners, the price they pay is the price they see. There's no extra fees or subscriptions or anything like that. And so that's, that's mm. worked for us. That's, that's worked for us to be able to fund the business and, and to grow it off its own revenues without extracting too much value from the platform. I think that's a lot of things that that's a, that's a mistake. That a lot of marketplaces make, they try to take too much value out of the equation and quite frankly they're taking more value than they're delivering and that's mm. why they break down it makes sense 
So another big challenge in the marketplace model is, you know, same lack of ownership where, you know, a customer may skip over, skip over GreenPal after that first job of, of assignment is completed, right? You can say that with, this happens with Upworks, this happens with Airbnb. Do you have a strategy for, for customers or even partner retention to make sure, you know, okay, they, they, they try this vendor, they love him. Um, and then the next time they're just going to call him directly. How do you, how do you overcome that? Yeah. So every marketplace deals with this to some extent. And as the founder, CEO, manager, whatever of the, of the marketplace, you can look at this as something that's happening to you. Like you can have like a victim mentality, like, oh, why are they doing that to us? Or you can look at it like it's happening for you. And, and it's like, okay, why are they, why in the hell would they want to go and do it the old way after we've delivered this delightful experience? And so in the early days for us, we knew everybody that was using the platform, so it didn't happen. And then once we started doing thousands of transactions, we started noticing it was happening. And we started, to, we had to really look at, okay, why in the hell would a, would a lawn care service want to go and like chase their money again? Why would they want to go back to pen and paper? Why? And so we had to really like ask why five times. And as it turned out, a lot of times it was, we just didn't have a meaningful impact on their business enough to stick in the platform. So it was really kind of a density of clientele and a density in the, in their route that, that really mattered, that really, uh, cause them to have switching costs to, to take people off the platform. And so it's never been a huge problem for us, but the way we've att- approached it is we just have to drive these, these service providers, more clients in a denser uh, ge- geo-, uh, geo to make it to where, okay, they now have a hundred customers on the GreenPal platform. And so why would they want to, now they're doing, they're running their whole business out of the app. So now why would I want to go back to saying, hey, just mail me a check now or Venmo me now. And, 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 and here's the other thing. The lawn guy is the last guy to get paid. And, and so now you have to go back to, oh, Mrs. Smith is 60 days behind, 90 days behind. Do I go, do I cut her service off? Like this happens more than you would ever imagine, like more than half of the time. And right. so on our platform, the vendor gets done and they get paid in like 24 hours and they don't have AR. And so, and, and so that's, it's like adding 10 times the value that we extract out of the platform is how we handle the, dis, is how we combat this, this intermediation. It makes perfect sense. Just keeping, keeping them busy, keep, keeping them work. As long as you keep paying them, you're feeding their, you know, filling up their table with, with their dinner every day. I mean, I don't think they're going to, bite the hand that feeds them. That's, right? how, that's <laughs> how we approach it. Yeah, yeah, love it. So clearly you have a, a large market and you know, uh, the way you're kind of marketing this is you're, you're everywhere, right? You said you're doing podcasts almost once per day. We chatted before the, this interview. Um, what else could you say have been like the best growth strategies you've been able to leverage and achieve this fast growth, which is, you know, doubling every single year? So first thing is have a product that people like to use and want to stick around using. Like that's, that's how we grow. It's, it's the, the compounding growth comes from people use it, they stay using it, and then they tell other people about it. Uh, so that's the first thing. Uh, and, and that was why we spent four years in one city was trying to figure out like when you hire somebody to mow your yard on our app, there's like a thousand things that can go wrong. They're, okay, his ch- kid got sick truck broke down, lawnmower got stolen, uh, rain that day, just didn't flat out feel like working, bless his heart. Uh, <laughs> all these things that can go wrong, uh, we've had to like build like a product that can solve every one of those things. And so like if there was a, if there was a thousand things that could go wrong, we've solved like 900 and 
40 of them. And so, oh. and so, uh, and so like, that's, that's the first thing. Like you're trying to grow fast. You get, you got to, however long it takes to build a great product, uh, under the radar, I think that's, that's smart. And so that's what, that's what we did. And then the, the, the next thing is particularly if you're bootstrap, you're probably only going to be good at one channel. Um, you're not going to be able to compete and like spray and pray and be good at all these different channels. You, like you're not going to be good at TikTok content and Pinterest and Twitter ads and Facebook ads and Google AdWords and print billboard radio you're, you're like referral, you're not going to be good at all these things, particularly, I mean, I mean, even, you know, but mo- you know, particularly if you're bootstrapped, but e- you know, even so, if you're venture backed, I think that's like a lot of what causes the death spiral is like, you know, you raise $5 million and you give it all right back to Google and Facebook. Mm-hmm. So, so for us, we focused on one channel. We, we tested a bunch of them in the early, early years, but we focused just on mm-hmm. Google organic search and like threw all of our weight into that, really trying to dissect how do you compete in search? How do you modify, you know, the GreenPal property to be congruent with what Google is looking for and, and, and to surface the content when people are searching for the queries that, 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 that matter to us. I mean, that, that was a bet the company decision in the first two years. And it's still a big part of our core competency is, is being good at search. And so if you're going to, and I, and, and like that, that's not just, Google organic search. If you're going to be really good at Facebook ads, it's going to be the same thing. You're going to be right. that good at that channel. You're going to understand the data and you're going to understand the testing and you're going to understand the, the creative and you're going to have like a velocity of, 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 of creative. You're pumping through it to understand, to get the feedback, to be able to compete. So I think like if you're, if you're bootstrapped, you're going to be good at one channel. You're going to, you're going to bet the company on it and you're just going to continue to optimize and grow and dominate in that channel. And that's, that's been the case for us. That's huge that you're able to stay disciplined from the beginning and say, look, we're going to focus on this and, you know, make sure it works completely before going. Did, did you guys try other, you know, marketing or growth experiments and maybe had little or no success in the growth? Did you do, you know, ads and whatnot at the beginning or not? Absolutely. With abysmal, (laughs) abysmal, abysmal failure uh yeah like we 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 pissed away 10 grand on google adwords one month trying to figure out how to work it we we pissed away like 20 grand on facebook ads trying to to unlock them uh we 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 bought print uh we bought newspaper ads we we tested instagram stories we we've tested every channel that you can test twitter ads and just trying to figure out, like, not only just to get that unit economics to work, but just even get in the hunt. Like, and, you know, as it turns out, we just, we can't afford $200 for a, for a customer. We just can't. We have to acquire that customer through more organic means. And for us, that's word of mouth, which goes back to keeping it uh, manageable and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the customer experience consistent enough to where enough people are happy using it to keep using it and tell people about it. And then... Uh, creating the the property and the content um, and the and the and the outreach uh, around uh, uh, competing in organic search like that's all we've worried about for eight years. Mm. Love it, love it. Uh, so Brian, I want to kind of switch gears to kind of the the rapid fire questions. Obviously, you can take your time, but it's more kind of personal. Um, what's one advice you wish you had known, and maybe would tell your twenty five year old self, or maybe somebody who's starting their first company? <sighs> Uh, so at 25, I had, uh, I had, 
30 people working for me. So at that point in my career, I would have told myself, look, going back, if I could jump in the DeLorean to, to focus on delegation and leadership. Uh, really figuring out how to, uh, how to up your game as a leader, uh, and how to delegate better and how to, and like to, to Jim Collins's quote, like get the right people on the bus and get the wrong people off the bus. Um, that, that, like I would have beaten that into my head at 25 and I, and like that still carries through today. These are still, these are still things that, that I can constantly like improve on. Um, now, now like rewind even further, just getting started out, like the, the advice would be, just to stay in it, figure it out, and as soon as you figure it out, delegate. And so I've made mistakes in my in 20 years of entrepreneurship of holding on to things too long. Like when we built GreenPal, we delegated like like it was a, it was kind of like a, a pendulum. We delegated too quickly, mm. and it was a total flop. And then we like stuck in it for four years doing all the coding, all the content, all the design ourselves. And then we, then we waited too long and didn't delegate soon enough. And so, so understanding when you're in a position to be able to delegate from a stewardship and not abdication. Like when we first started, we, we delegated from abdication. I don't know how to do this. You handle it. Not a good way to delegate. Uh, I know how to do this. This is how we do it here. And this is why we do it this way. You handle it. That's how you delegate. And so being able to manage that, 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 that continuum is something that I've been on the wrong side of, uh, particularly in the last eight years. So that would be advice that if I could go back and tell myself, I would tell myself that. Love it. Um, so you mentioned Jim Collins. You mentioned Dave Ramsey. Uh, who or what would you say are the best three resources? This could be books, uh, people, mentors, people you follow who you say have been the most instrumental to your success over these last few years. Yeah, you know, so 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 this is a SaaS SAS audience. Um, mm. You know, one of my favorite books is The E-Myth by Michael Gerber, which is just like Business Fundamentals 101. And I think that applies to every business, whether you're opening a barbershop or, or, you're, or you want to you wanna open a scooter company. That, you know, like I, I, I think like I think like that book everybody needs to read. And then but Absolutely. but then like but then we can go we can go more towards towards the SaaS aspect of it. And I still think like everything Steve Blank has ever written, Four Steps to the Epiphany and the Startup Owner's Manual, even though those books were, were written 10 years ago plus, like the fundamentals in those books about around customer development and trying to figure out like how to fire bullets and not cannonballs. Mm-hmm. And like the, I mean, still to this day, we have these works in the, in the, in the, in the community and still like, like I'll see entrepreneurs, they just want to go code something for seven months without getting the first user to use it. And it's like, you don't even like, you're, you're building this thing off of all these false assumptions. You really need to get people to use this thing. Like, let's just code for a month and then let's get some people using that. So I think like those books are still like still fundamental. Everything Steve Blank's ever written and, and even, even lean startup um, to a degree are, are just like table stakes books that everybody needs to read before you get started. I agree. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome books. We'll add those links to uh, show notes for people to check out. Um, Brian, obviously you've, you've had a great exit. You're growing, you know, rapidly, uh, you know, money has probably been, you know, solved at that point after that exit. What does success mean to you today? Whether that's personally, financially, business, life, that is no right answer. Yeah. Success for me, like, I think like one of my favorite books is a book called, uh, a thousand miles in a million years. 
And the author's name is, uh, I can't remember his name. You'll have to put it in the links. Anyway, sure, the name, the, 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 the moral of the story of this book is he says in the book, to live an interesting life, you have to live an interesting story. And so it kind of causes you to think like adventurous and courageous and like to live an interesting story uh, uh, in your lifetime to make it worthwhile. And so for me, I'm reading this book. I'm like, damn, that really makes sense. And then I start kind of like ex- extracted it one one level uh, layer forward. I thought, oh man, my business is the storyline to my life. Like if you think about mm. yourself in the in the context of the storyline of your life, you're kind of like the the hero, and you're the main character, and you're going through all of these uh, obstacles and tribulations to to get to the mountaintop, and like. And, and like the fact that it's hard is what makes it interesting. And the, and the fact that it's hard is what makes it valuable. And, and so your business can be like the storyline to your life to cause you to live an interesting life. And so that's what, what, what success looks like for me. It's like, it's, it's setting out hard things and getting them done and, and getting smart people together to, to work on problems together and like creating opportunities for the stakeholders I have in this business and the people that use my products. And like, to me, that's success. That's a lot of fun. That's, that's, that's like the purpose of, for why I get out of bed in the morning. And that's what success looks like. To live an interesting life, you need to live an interesting story. Love it. Love it. Yeah. That's, that's I, awesome. yeah and, and I didn't come up with that. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Uh, that's the author of that book. <laughs> cool. Thank you. This, this has been great, Brian. I appreciate you jumping on the, the SAS District show for just to kind of wrap it up. What, what are your future plans for Green Pal? And where can our audience get in touch with you to learn more about what, you, what you're doing and what you're working on? Yeah, so the, the the Jeff Bezos quote, it's still day one. Like, it's still minute one of day one for us. Like, we, you know, we're doing you know, hundreds of thousands of people using the app. That's great. But, but we want millions using it. So we've got a long way to go. We're going to be at this a long time. Luckily, you know, we're kind of, uh, we're, we're always going to be default alive. We're kind of in charge of our own destiny, which is a great place to be. But, uh, so we, we're, we'll be at this for a while. Um, people want to reach me or people want to use the app. You can download green pal in the app store or play store. And anybody wants to get at me, you can just hit me up on LinkedIn. That's, that's the best place to reach me. Cool. Cool. We'll add your, your link to the show notes for people to check you out. And uh, make sure you guys download it if you guys are in the U.S. And, and see if it works for, for your lawn. Thank you so much, Brian. Appreciate you jumping on. Nice chat. Hey, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com. And myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.